Hello and welcome to The Anecdotalist, Episode 4, Part 2 of the Rendlesham Forest Incident. I'm your host, Paul Packard, and with me today, as always, is my co-host, Jason McKinney. Hello, my name is Jason McKinney. So today we're talking about, uh, we're going to walk through a discussion on the many theories that surround Rendlesham Forest. I want to start out by talking about the history of Suffolk, England, and then walk you through the binary code that was downloaded into Jim Pennison's brain. We'll talk about the relevance of the twin bases, the critics of the event, the theories, and finally give our own opinions as to what we think really happened in December of 1980. And it's actually kind of funny, too, because you heard part one probably just before this. It's actually been about a month since we recorded part one. We had Christmas, Thanksgiving. I feel like we've basically just both been really busy. Um, we finally got an opportunity to sit down and buckle down and record. And so, uh, Jason, do you have a drink? Because I feel like I needed one after all the things we just went through through Christmas and New Year's and all the things. Man, that is no joke. My family finally left, and I love them to death, but I am glad that they are gone. So, yes, I I have my coffee in front of me. Okay. Well, I have my Elijah Craig 18 that I'm sipping on tonight. Not quite a coffee. Uh, It's 8.30, so (laughs) I have to work tomorrow. I'm going back to work tomorrow, so I do not want that. I would rather have something to put me out, Um, so I'm drinking my my bourbon. So with all that said, Jason, are you ready? Yes, I am so excited about this, man. I've been looking forward to this during the holidays. I, I've been so excited. You kind of left us on a cliffhanger last time. And, you know, during this holiday, I was actually had one question that I kept wondering about was whether or not this um, Jim, the guy with the binary code, I wonder if um, he ever saw a psychologist or something after this. Because I mean, I think after I had a binary code downloaded to my head, I think I might want to see a doctor or something, you know? Yeah, we actually are going to get into that a little bit um, here a little bit later. He saw a hypnotist and that we're going to have some of that later to talk about, which it really gets interesting. And they uncover some stuff during that uh, hypnotherapy that he he goes through. So um, if you're ready, here we go. So first, let's talk about a brief history of Suffolk, England. Um, So the area is pretty old, and I mean like everywhere in Europe and around the world, there were people settled well before the place was called Suffolk, England. Just northeast of London, Suffolk sits across from Belgium and the Netherlands. So I'm kind of picturing like this landscape. I'm thinking more of like a video game, like Oblivion type of landscape, or something maybe more along the lines of um, that one game where you had to get your... Um, people across like these great landscapes with just a a horse and a trailer kind of thing. Uh, what was that game called? The Oregon Trail. The Oregon Trail, man, isn't that that's kind of what I'm picturing here? Is the Oregon Trail? Interesting. Different different location, <laughs> geographically <laughs> speaking. Um, no one died of dysentery that we know of, <laughs> but possibly. Yeah, but Suffolk, England. I mean, the, the period we're talking about right now. I mean, there's archaeology that suggests this area was inhabited to some degree as far back as 400,000 years ago. And now we're not going to spend the next hour walking through a history lesson of Suffolk. But I did want to set the stage because I think it's important to understand that this area has likely seen countless people 
activity of all types, and likely a lot of death. So this is kind of making me think that we would see more of a a ghost story than an alien story. I think this area has a lot of rich ghost um, activity and paranormal activity. Uh, of course, we're talking about the Rendlesham Forest event tonight, but there is a lot of ghost stuff that happens. There's a lot of, again, rich history here. That there probably is some ghosts wandering around this area, but I mean, maybe ghost aliens. I don't know. We'll see. So High Lodge is this site, uh, uh, probably the oldest, best preserved archaeological site in the area. Uh, many artifacts point to a rich history of man-made tools and human activity, again, dating back 400,000 years. Within this region, there are many prehistoric burial grounds. So knowing your geographical history, the glacial and interglacial periods of the Ice Age, which we currently find ourselves in, caused human activity to come and go in waves as glaciers moved back and forth. About 10,000 BC, when we entered our most recent interglacial period, human activity was here to stay, and the continuous inhabitation of this area was set, leading to where we are now. Yeah, you know my geography sucks, so I'm, I'm kind of glad that you're going over the um, geography of this kind of stuff. I mean, I'll, whatever I can give you to kind of set the stage, that's my that's my goal right now. So I know you're probably thinking, what the heck does this have to do with the Rendlesham Forest incident? Well, I bring it all up because I think it's important to understand that when talking about something otherworldly, we need to have perspective and understand that there is quite a bit at play here and a rich history in this area. So this area is filled with ancient burial grounds, but also we see Iron Age and Bronze Age burial grounds as well. So it kind of makes you wonder if maybe these aliens came visited, helped the advancement of human society, um, and then just left, you know, like coming in and checking on us. Kind of like Star Trek where they just pop in from time to time to see as things advance. They're like, oh, wow, they're they're building nukes now. Um, and the last time they were there, they were, you know, cutting tools and stuff. Maybe. <laughs> <clears throat> so for a while, the Celtics owned this area. And according to the Romans, they may have sacrificed livestock and humans and their religious practices. They also held many ceremonies in sacred groves, basically wooded areas regarded as religiously significant. So the Romans take over, and they have the area for something like 400 years. So in AD 61, the rebellion of Boudica, I don't know if I said that right or not, but Boudica kicks off, and a stand is made by the governor of Britain, Paulinus. He gathers 10,000 men and faces off against a British horde said to be about 10 times the size of his force. They manage to win the battle, and they slaughter thousands of people. All I hear is ghosts. Thousands of ghosts. That's all I heard you say, was that there is now an area full of ghosts. <laughs> tons and tons and tons of dead people. Yeah. We, we need to do a podcast about this area for like some ghost incidents. We, we will cycle back through to a paranormal event eventually. Maybe we could go through here. Uh, maybe you could tell me about some ghost stories from this area if you, if you really want to, and we can change up the, the process a little bit. That does sound fun. So after this period, we see Britain change hands quite a few times with the Anglo-Saxons, the Normans, and of course the English. Again, I bring all this up because I want to set the stage of the many cultures that have occupied this land and the many rituals that were likely observed here. By the time World War II rolls around, Suffolk becomes somewhat of a stronghold and is one of the most heavily fortified areas in England. So you have to understand why these bases formed here in Suffolk, right across the English Channel. If you know your World War II history, prior to D-Day, there was a lot of back-and-forth air raids leading up to the ground invasion of mainland Europe. Suffolk was right on the other side of the English Channel, and so planes flying back into England 
low on gas or badly damaged. They needed somewhere close to land. There were something like 32 airstrips built and used during World War II in Suffolk. Bentwaters and Woodbridge hosted many of these landing strips. These weren't the only two bases in Suffolk, but they played a major role in assisting air raids of mainland Europe. The twin bases after World War II utilized their airstrips less and less, but I want to comment on Pope's perspective on why these bases may have attracted something otherworldly. Pope talks about witchcraft, Luftwaffe ghosts, the demon dog, the black shuck, which is said to roam the area. And I think the intention is to paint the picture of the mystique or the eeriness of the area. This leads to the next part of this, Orford Ness. On the coast of the English Channel near Rendlesham Forest and the Twin Bases, it's the location of top-secret experiments that were done during the early part of the 20th century. So I was, I'm so curious what the, the Black Shuck was. So I, I just Googled it, and literally the Black Shuck is just a big black dog. It's just a wolf out in the woods. It's um, the Prisoner of Azkaban is what it is. Oh, really? No, I have no idea. I'm just saying. I, oh, my first thought was, I think it's um, Sirius Black. <laughs> <laughs> He's been know. roaming the area for a while. He's Animagus, right? Is that what that's called? Yeah. Well, there you go. In the 1930s, Scottish meteorologist Robert Watson Watt set out to create a death ray using radio waves. This led to the early versions of radar that utilized radio waves to identify incoming aircraft. This research was moved to Bodzi Research Center, where if you remember earlier, part one was the location of one of the towers that picked up an aircraft on its radar. They did some weather modification there, and then this site actually became the location of a top-secret U.S. program called Cobra Mist, with the intention of producing a more advanced radar system. Wow. So this obviously probably attracted the aliens. They're sitting here like, oh, look at these humans over here trying to make a death ray. Let's go and you know put them in the right track. <laughs> That's, yeah, maybe. I think it's more here. Well, it's also important to know that there's speculation that NATO may have stationed nuclear weapons at the twin bases and potentially nuclear research. So why is that important? Well, it's important in the context of the Cold War with the Soviets, but also where else will extraterrestrial life want to go and poke around? Looking at death rays, messing with nuclear fission, nuclear reactions, a nuclear research center. Maybe that's where they're going to come and poke around. So I'm thinking nuclear radiation plus radio waves meant to kill. I'm thinking aliens came down, told us about it was a bad idea, probably slapped our hands and told us we need to stop before we hurt ourselves or hurt others. They're probably like, you know, you guys need to stop killing each other. Let's uh, do something more productive with those radio waves. I've watched a lot of Star Trek and it, it makes sense that aliens are popping in to keep us from killing ourselves, but maybe not. I mean, <laughs> prime directive. I mean, we're about to do it again. And now we're seeing more aliens here recently. You know, what's interesting. And I, I, we haven't talked about this and I didn't write this down in my outline here, but when it, when you talk about extraterrestrial or like aliens and stuff, they often pop up around nuclear sites. Uh, a lot of people see stuff around nuclear sites and it makes you wonder are they popping around to kind of see where things are? Are they making sure we don't kill ourselves? Are we just like some alien farm and they're like making sure that we're not accidentally killing ourselves before they can come harvest us? You know what I mean? We don't know. 
<laughs> that's i mean it, it's hard to tell it makes sense, it's hard to tell. i guess in some kind of way they're like we're gonna come back and eat you we don't want you to kill yourselves off yeah the last thing you want is your livestock killing itself but maybe <laughs> okay so from here i want to get into the rendlesham code and so in part one we discussed how jim peniston after approaching the aircraft or craft touching its hull and the symbols he received a direct download to his brain in his mind's eye from the craft while being blinded by a bright light. All I can picture is finding Nemo. He touched the butt. <laughs> he touched the butt. That's all I can picture him when, it, when I see, when I picture Jim touching this ship, you know? Honestly, if you were in a situation like, like Jim and there was an aircraft and you're probably thinking like, this is probably aliens. I probably would touch it too. Like how often do you get the opportunity? Like, you know, the air force museum when you walk past like the SR 71 and it's like, Oh, don't touch in your mind. You're like, I want to touch this thing. I, I kind of wonder if that's what he was, he was feeling is like, Oh, it's an opportunity to touch a, a spacecraft. And then he touched it. And then boom, <laughs> he got like a download. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> if there was a random object in the middle of the woods, a big random metal object in the middle of the woods, <laughs> If it had like some symbols that I didn't know about, yeah, I might be a little iffy on it, you know. Then again, if there was like a door and there was a way to get inside, I know it sounds stupid, but I might actually try to go inside it versus touching it. I, I know that sounds silly, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. So Peniston held on to this information for something like thirty years. Uh, basically, it sat in the back of his notebook that he used to sketch the symbols he saw on the craft. So I watched an episode of The Basement Office. It's a miniseries owned by the New York Post. And they interview Penniston and Nick Pope, uh, the author of Encounter and Rendlesham Forest. And it's weird because he's being asked about the symbols by somebody that he drew in his notebook. And he gets the notebook out. And as they're going through it, the person sees the binary code and asks about it. And he basically just like, oh, those are the numbers that got downloaded into my brain. And since that moment, it seems to be part of the narrative when they talk through the Rendlesham incident. Yeah, so I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, don't, don't pay attention to those. I, I'm, I mean, I'm perfectly sane. They told me that I was sane. I am sane. <laughs> told you you were sane. Well, the guy's on the ship. He's going to end up in the Amityville Insane Asylum like uh, the tennis player. So they make a point to say that in 1980, Pennison was unfamiliar with binary code. And when it was downloaded directly to his brain, he felt compelled to write it down. He writes it down, doesn't say anything about it. And then 30 years later, it resurfaces again. So in part one, when I talked about the ancient aliens episode and the message that was downloaded, we talked about maybe six words worth of decoding that was done and the coordinates off the coast. So Pope and team, they, they did a bit more. Uh, they had the binary code analyzed and decoded. What they came up with was, quote, exploration of humanity, end quote. So then coordinates to high Brazil, quote, continuous for planetary advan, which of course is extrapolated out to be the word advance, quote, fourth coordinate continuate UQSCBPR before, end quote. Which, I mean... These words, you know, in, in the Ancient Aliens episode, they kind of like extrapolated out like, oh, this is what they meant. But this more feels like code with words kind of built in a little bit. Um, there's also coordinates to 
Caracol, Belize, Sedona, Arizona, the Great Pyramid in Giza, the Nazca Lines in Peru, Taishan Ku in China. I don't know if I said that right. The portal at Temple of Apollo in Maxus, Greece. And then, quote, eyes of your eyes, origin, and then coordinates for High Brazil. And then it says, quote, origin year 8100. So that was a lot, but we're going to break it down a little bit here. With this extended version of information, I do want to say this perfectly exemplifies my spastic way of researching. When I did the research for part one, I was laser focused on just getting the main storyline researched and kind of put into like an outline. I came across the Ancient Aliens episode. I knew that there was an entire chapter on the binary code, but I didn't really read it um, because it's an ancillary piece of the story that I knew we were going to cover in part two. That said, sitting down and diving into the binary code, several things stand out to me. First, I think we have to talk about why this took Peniston so long to talk about. I find it weird that just this was just in the back of his book and he just stumbles upon it. And it was like, oh, yeah, I wrote down 15 to 16 pages of ones and zeros 30 years ago. But now I'm willing to talk about them. Why Why hold on to that? So, I mean, I think that's kind of obvious. Once again, back to the, you know, I don't want anybody to think I'm crazy. You know, I don't want to end up in the loony bin. Maybe 30 years from now or later in the future, people will be more apt to hear about aliens and they'll think I'm less crazy when I show them these ones and zeros or, you know, the binary code hadn't, what you said, the binary code hadn't been. No, the binary, binary code, most people didn't know in 1980, most people weren't familiar with binary code. Like now everyone kind of like, we saw the matrix. I took computer courses in college, like. Most people knows know by what binary code is to some extent, ones and zeros, yeses and nos, on and off, things like that. But I think back in 1980, the, the perspective is that he's like, oh, ones and zeros, why does this, what does this even mean? Whereas now if someone had ones and zeros, they'd be like, oh, this is binary. Let's try to decode it. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe he, yeah, maybe he didn't realize it himself and just didn't think it really made any sense. So he didn't mention it, you know? And then also, you know, my other option was, you know, maybe he made it up later on to gain more fame and money by accidentally revealing this code in the back of his book. You know, that's always an option to get more money out of it. Yeah. I'm not sure how much, if they've made money, how much money, whatever, but you do raise a good point. Like maybe it's the, all this stuff is dying down. If you're speculating that this was all made up, it is something that like no one can really say, yeah, that didn't happen. He'd be like, oh, no, I, ones and zeros were downloaded. Here's what here's what they all are. It is a good way to, like, later on bring it back to light if you're taking that angle as, like, or that perspective that this is all fake. I mean, which, you know, oh, they're making an episode about aliens. Let me put some little extra nugget in here to help out, make it go further. But then, you know, there's an option that it could be real and that we just weren't supposed to think about it and, the government told him not to say anything about it, you know, because, you know, a binary code of ones and zeros for some random areas in the world that comes up with a random year that it came out, you know, that's just, I don't know, that's the government could be like, well, we definitely don't want to say anything about that until we figure out what, what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So the next thing I think we need to talk about is Peniston's knowledge of binary code. 
he didn't know anything about binary code back in 1980. I know we talked about that already, but this computing language, and I don't think the general public, they just weren't aware back then. It, you know, today, like I said, we're all kind of familiar to some extent with what binary is. Right, which is pretty much just like numbers equaling words, essentially, correct? Well, it's ones and zeros. So like uh, a bit, so like megabit, so so many bits equals a byte, megabyte, you know, gigabyte, all the data information. One bit is either a one or a zero. So computing language, it's just a bunch of ones and zeros basically saying on or off, yes or no. And that creates, there's different, in this situation, it's being used to figure out letters and numbers or whatever, but every computing device that exists, to my knowledge, uses at the base level binary code and you drill all the way down to one bit, it's either a one or a zero. And then so many of those create a byte and then megabyte, gigabyte, you know, terabyte, all the, the larger, more and more data basically comes down to ones and zeros. Wouldn't you hate to be the guy that has to go through Jim's journal and write down all these ones and zeros to figure out what the code is? Yeah. You're saying like he, some guy sat on a computer and was like one, zero, one, zero, <laughs> typing all of them out. Yeah. You can go and look at, you can look at his, there's pictures. They scanned in his notebook online, but I get what you're saying. The guy that actually had to do it, had to just type one, 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 zero, zero, one, zero, like all the, yeah, that's funny. So in this iteration of binary decoding, we have a list of coordinates and you may notice that they are all over the world. And also each location has some significance. One important piece that we talk about and that was really honed in on the episode of the basement office was the coordinates off the coast of Ireland. This location was uncovered in the ancient aliens episode as well. Uh, I think we talked about it being a coordinate off the, off the coast, but the basement office they go on to talk about how the location aligns with Celtic mythological location of High Brazil, which is a small island off the coast of Ireland that does not exist, but shows up on old maps. This mythological island from Celtic mythology was said to be visible one day every seven years and visible from the coast of Ireland. It's like the Celtic version of Atlantis. So we can get even deeper on what High Brazil is or the folklore behind it, that's not our focus or our goal today. I have a source attached to this, the show notes if you feel like you want to go down that rabbit hole. But the point of talking about this is it's a location amongst the coordinates. It's, however, more significant because the final sentence of the decoding states origin, high Brazil. So the code is stated that it originates from the coordinates that coincides with a mythical island off the coast of Ireland. So it, this is so interesting, man. So I'm sitting here looking at it. Another name of this island is the Enchanted Island in the Isle of the Blessed. Like it's got so many different names. And like 1325, some map maker tried to find this island again. 1436, 1873. People keep looking for this island. I mean, it just says that so many people have tried to like find it and no one can find it. But it also says like some people will like see it in the fog or show up. At, it'll show up in the fog randomly. Like, dude, this is so cool. Like, I was curious if um, anybody went diving for the island. And um, in this article, which is from um, Library of Congress.gov, 
there's this article that somebody posted or a book. I don't know if it's paid from a book or something. Uh, but it doesn't say, it says they went looking for it recently and still cannot find the island. So hopefully, you know, they obviously went downwards and tried to dive for it, but this is crazy. I, I imagine it's similar to like Atlantis where it's um, mythological in nature. So one thing that I think happens a lot was when they mapped, they did like the maritime maps and things. If someone had, if they saw an island on an older map, they would include it in their map just to make sure they didn't miss like any land masses or things. I imagine that's part of like why this thing has continued on. But at the same time, who's to say it's like Atlantis? We don't know. Maybe it exists. And if people have, they've gone and they've scuba dived the area and they've gone through and they've gone down with some Marines, I don't know. And they looked through the area and they didn't see anything. Maybe it is a mythological site. Who knows? Maybe it existed in the past or maybe it exists in the future. That being said, the last thing I want to talk about in regards to the binary code is the origin date. It gives the origin date as year 8100. So this is actually going to lead us into our first theory of what the heck happened in Rendlesham Forest back in 1980. So I'm a little confused here because, and maybe this was just left out of the episode from the basement office, but the way they talk about the binary code resurfacing is, of course, he pulls it out of his notebook and the person he was showing asked about the binary code in the back. And this happened back in 2010. In the book, Encounter in Rindlesham Forest, Nick Pope, he details a regression therapy session with Jim Pennison. You asked about this earlier. This is that psychotherapy session um, that took place in 1994. And so I'm going to read an excerpt from the book here. Um, this is the transcript from Jim Pennison's hypnosis session. So again, Nick Pope's book, Encounter in Rendlesham Forest. This is a, um, a quote directly from that book. It starts with the hypnotherapist asking, you weren't supposed to understand the program? Pennison, no. By touching these things, the raised glyphs on the craft surface, I activated these things hypnotherapist you touch the symbols and set off a program peniston yes it was repairing itself all they wanted was a place to stay while it was repairing itself hypnotherapist and by touching the symbols you disrupted the repair program peniston i activated a binary code the two government agents men wanted to know why hypnotherapist and what do you answer them Peniston, they asked me if I ever had any other encounters with them, binary and them, the time travelers. I, I haven't. They're discussing it between themselves, the situation. They've got a problem. Hypnotherapist, what's their problem? Peniston, the problem is because I can't tell anybody. They ask no more questions about the craft and they want to know, discussing with each other, what to do with me. So, I mean, <laughs> two government agents, I, I'm pretty sure our government is not above putting a bullet in someone's head to keep time travel a secret. I mean, our government's done some pretty shady things and I'm pretty sure they're not going to let someone live if they knew about time travel that they discovered way off in the future. You know, of course, we could play this off as aliens as well. If they sit there and try to make Peniston believe that it's aliens, then they're like, okay, well, 
you know, now that we got that solved, no one's going to believe a crazy person talk about aliens. Or, you know, the, the fact that time travel would be so advanced that they don't even care if he tells anybody about time travel because no one's going to believe him. And now including we have, what, you said five hours of recording that get, goes missing by the government? But that's what I was going to say. It's interesting because I think whenever something like this occurs or happens, if a person seems off their rocker or crazy, the more the better because no one's going to believe anything they say if it's doubted with a bunch of different things. Maybe this is some government agency, but it's not like a U.S. government. Maybe it is, but the year 8,100, we, we got 6,000 years before that even happens, right? And you would think that you mentioned putting a bullet in his brain just to you know take care of him. At that point, they would have technology to erase things. I mean, if you think back to Burroughs, right? He froze in time. He doesn't remember anything from that night. So you would think that they would wipe Penniston's brain. I don't know. Or the Department of Temporal Investigations from Star Trek, they would show up and they would fix things. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe... It was aliens, and they put this additional stuff in his head. Or, here's a better theory, this hypnotherapist, as she's asking him questions, he's just kind of off the riff saying things that don't really align with anything. So with that first theory, the time traveler theory, um, based on the interviews and different materials I I looked at when trying to compile every outstanding piece of data, is that Jim Penniston believes that the craft actually is terrestrial in nature, and is humans from the future. And this is evident and first acknowledged by the hypnotherapy session when he refers to them as time travelers and not as aliens or as a UFO. So the time travel theory, I think mainly hangs on the hypnotherapy session that was explored by Jim Penniston. There really isn't a whole lot to go off of other than that 8,100 date, 8,100. Penniston's hypnotherapy session leads us, and apparently Penniston, to believe that for whatever reason, the craft these two government agents were in and had to set down to repair for whatever reason. So before we go discounting time travel, I think we have to take a second and ask ourselves, one, do we believe any of this took place? Two, do we believe Jim Penniston's recollection and or the binary code that was downloaded to his brain? And finally, three... If we are willing to stretch our imagination and reach the conclusion that this event happened, and we are to believe Penniston's recollection, why stop before we encompass his hypnotherapy session and binary code decoding as well? Yeah, so either one, aliens hypnotized Penniston to believe in time travel, or secret agents from the government hypnotized Penniston to believe in aliens. So either way, poor Penniston's brain is just going through it. You know, he either one, he sees aliens and is getting, you know, mind erased to believe in time traveling agents or these time traveling agents or manipulating his head to believe in aliens. I mean, (laughs) this poor man. Yeah, he's been through it and... I mean, he's he's talking about it. He 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 wants to talk about it. I mean, anybody I think anyone, if we look at it through the lens of he actually encountered something otherworldly or apparently worldly from the future, you got to imagine. There's a lot of confusing pieces to this, and there's a lot happening to him by another force. And you do have to feel bad for the guy um, just getting pounded with all this stuff. 
and then to like feel confident enough to talk about it. And you got two random people, me and you talking about it. Like this guy, what if he's lying? (laughs) (laughs) If this all truly happened, I mean, yeah. Wow. That's unfortunate for Penniston. He's gone kind of through the ringer since 1980. Dude, I cannot sleep if I was this guy. Yeah, I know. I know. So that's the first theory. That's um, the time travel theory. So there's also, I'm going to talk about this really briefly because Pope explores this in his book. So I do want to mention it. There's not really anything linking this theory to any kind of one thing, but Pope also takes a quick turn into the multiple dimensions theory. Now I'm not discounting this theory. And if we're going to entertain time travel, extraterrestrials, and also the paranormal, why not also include alternate dimensions? That is part of this maybe, but nothing really goes beyond that. There's not like a hypnotherapy session. There wasn't a craft that like explicitly talked about dimensions. He just mentions it in his book. I thought, well, I mean, if we're talking about theories, why not include that? (laughs) And the the next theory will be how Bigfoot actually hijacked a helicopter, crash landed it, and um, Peniston caught him and uh, Bigfoot just knocked him out. You know, that's not too far off, maybe. Or it was Sirius Black, but (laughs) we don't know. (laughs) <laughs> i'm going for bigfoot my wife would kill me if i didn't go for bigfoot yeah um my wife couldn't care less but <laughs> well i don't know so now i don't really know how to explore this next topic i i want to somehow talk about paranormal activity not because it's really talked about as a theory anywhere else but because for some reason i want to i think given the history of this area the known witchcraft the rich history of many different cultures Uh, who performed many different rituals along with the amount of death in this place. Who's to say that lights in the forest don't point to ghosts. So another theory, Um, all these um, people from the war died in this forest. Aliens are flying over the forest. They see orbs of light that are these ghosts. They crash uh, the alien aircraft and boom, we got alien ghosts. Yeah. I mean, you never know. Think about, for example, and I'm going way off topic here, and this isn't in my outline, but the Iliad, for example, um, Homer writes about gods, right? And the battle that took place uh, when they sacked Troy and the gods above them fighting at the same time. And I, when I first read that years ago, I, I, I kind of thought about that as what if that were aliens above them observing or they were, they were seeing things in the sky because maybe what you just said makes sense, and that's what reminded me, is that they were observing battles. They were observing all kinds of stuff and writing it down. And, I mean, these people are in the middle of, like, you know, bloodlust or fighting each other, trying to kill each other. Why wouldn't aliens show up? Or time travelers to come back, and they're going to get actual footage of it and take it back for their history lessons. I don't know. And they just got stuck in 1980. Correct. And they crash-landed for a repair and some random guy named Jim Penniston walked up and touched their, their aircraft. Let's go back to the, let's get back to ghosts In many paranormal encounters. People talk about seeing orbs of light earlier. I talked about the Celtic rituals that involve sacred groves and possible human sacrifices. Could this be the other end of a Celtic ritual that resurfaced in 1980? So another theory is that they did a Celtic ritual for their God and somehow did some kind of magical ceremony where they're sending off what metal UFO ships up into the 
future. I'm not sure how that how how the whole Celtic ritual could play into this as much. Because you I mean the metal? We have a big metal ship. I don't think there's any Celtic ritual that says we're going to summon a metal ship. No, you're you're right. There's probably nothing. There's probably not. But if you think back to the the incident where most people saw lights in the forest, I think if you look through it through that lens, maybe a Celtic ritual. This is on the other end of that, and then Jim Peniston added on to the craft because he's the only one that saw the craft. Everybody else saw like lights and stuff in the sky. That's oh, my thought. You're right. You're right. So Jim is um, out there to make money while everybody else is seeing um, rituals that are still being performed how many centuries in the future from these Celtic rituals? In the past. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows if that's really part of it. But <laughs> I, it's the theory. It's one of the many theories here. This is an off an offshoot of an offshoot. I just thought about it. Okay. So now that we're past that, let's talk about the UFOs. UFOs are now referred to as UAPs is I think what most people think of when they think of Vernalishan Forest. I think you have to remember that up until recently, roughly 2010, Jim Penniston's binary code was in a notebook tucked away in his house. Penniston and Burroughs were undoubtedly a piece of the puzzle, but I think when most people think of the Rendlesham Forest incident, they think of Halt's tape and his memo. I don't really think at least I didn't see anywhere that Halt and Penniston or Burroughs were familiar with each other or spoke much about this incident. The Halt tape and the memo that were read in part one were the main pieces of hard evidence until kind of fairly recently. Halt's tape and memo were released in like 1982 and 1983. As much as I want to, and as much as we pull from Pope's book, I think we need to lean into Halt's recollection, his tape and memo when talking about the extraterrestrial theory. His recollection, I feel, aligns more closely with extraterrestrial life. If it were just time travelers stopping by to repair their ships, why did they come back? Why was there two sets of lights in the sky that night with Holt? Also, I think the missing time is more important to me about this incident. Many extraterrestrial encounters, an aspect of those encounters has missing time as a big component. Knowing there was a search party formed and that the four men were missing roughly 45 minutes from their watches, I think that also indicates an, an extraterrestrial encounter over time travelers taking a break to repair their ship. So, you know, I don't get that. Like, how does it point more towards aliens over a time matter? You know, if, in my opinion, 45 minutes of missing time makes more sense to me if somebody with a time traveling machine came in um, to this area because they had to manipulate time to get there versus aliens coming from space and landing on our soil. Maybe so. And I can understand why you would, you would think that my, my thought is most when you look at extraterrestrials or aliens or time travel, whatever, most encounters, when you look back at records, recollections of encounters that happened with aliens or extraterrestrial um, encounters, Usually there's a component of missing time. I get why you would think, oh yeah, time travel, that's probably why 45 minutes are missing. But most stories that talk about alien encounters or like people being probed or whatever, there's usually missing time that is is part of that. It's attributed to aliens, typically. That's my point. That's a, that, that could be a possibility. 
And also, do we know if the military bases were experimenting on anything at that time? Um, well, we're actually going to get into some theories here about some of that. So let's let's hold on to our our thoughts on that. Keep come back to we'll come back to that in a second. Jumping ahead of the game. Yeah. Uh, okay. So whether or not we have time travelers, alternate dimensions, or extraterrestrial life, this may all just be a mute point because what if this was just a prank that was taken just too far? So an ex-U.S. Air Force military policeman, Kevin Cond, claims this all stems from a practical joke he pulled while on patrol. He claims that the UFO was, in fact, his 1979 Plymouth Valair. He says he stuck red and green lenses on the spotlight and drove around the dense fog flashing his lights. He was pulling a prank on someone he knew to be stationed at the back gate. The problem was that that person was neither Burroughs or Penniston. Additionally, he claims to have driven along the Woodbridge runway, which was not in the same direction as the forest. So Cond also has trouble remembering when this exactly took place. And his description of the weather from that night does not really line up with what the weather was known to be. And so could his prank have been replicated? Maybe. Or some of the details just a bit foggy all these years later. Or this just another stab at trying to debunk Penniston and Burroughs' claim. Well, this kind of makes sense that um, you know the military is paying one of its own men to come out and say, "Yeah, it's a prank" to try to hide this whole situation. You know, best way to hide aliens or time, you know, time, secret time agents would be to like have your own military personnel go out there and say, "Oh yeah, I was playing a prank." Possibly that could make sense. Similarly to the claim by Khan, the man by the name. Peter Turtill, he, he came forward and suggested the lights from that night were actually from a tractor full of fertilizer that he had set ablaze in the woods to hide evidence of stolen fertilizer. So his claim was that the tractor broke down and it was at this point he realized he was transporting stolen fertilizer. He and a friend towed it into the woods and they burned the evidence. So them burning the fertilizer sent colorful flames into the sky. And that was what was mistaken for the UFO. Churchill, like Cond, has no real way of backing up this claim other than coming forward years later to make it. At this point, I, I would assume anyone could claim anything about this event if they were even remotely close to the area at that time. And how would we even vet such a story? Yeah, so it's kind of hard to believe that out of, what, four or five different guys standing in the forest, none of them could figure out that there's fire in the woods. Like, first off, you see fire in the woods, you run. And these lights, the way they moved, that doesn't seem like a, a fire. So Holt saw these lights, like, levitating in the air. And they were making very random movements. It wasn't like a, a flicker of a fire. I feel like Heath, this commander of this base, should have been, like, been able to easily figure out, oh, that's a fire. If that was the case, why are we still having five hours of recording this thing? Yeah, there's that. But I think also... Yeah, your point makes a lot of sense too. Like the whole fertilizer thing. A part a part of me wonders like it happened over the course of multiple nights too. It wasn't just like the one night it was fire, but the other night Penniston and Burroughs they encountered something, Holt encountered something. It was an extended period of time. They watched these lights move around. I, I feel like maybe these guys were like in the future they see this story, they're like, I was burning fertilizer. I that must have been what they saw, and they just like made the claim. Maybe that's what I feel like that makes more sense than 
trying to smush this and make it make it make sense. So the next theory, uh, there's a claim that the witnesses to the Rendlesham Forest incident may have been hallucinating, and the large crowds and fast-moving information over the period of a couple days could have lended to mass hysteria. So first, let's talk about the hallucinations. They were hallucinating. There's a lot of people involved here with firsthand experience from this event. Whatever caused the hallucinating would have had to affect them all, basically. One claim is hallucinogenic mushrooms that were growing in the forest that all the parties involved came in contact with. Again, there's quite a few people here and that were direct witnesses to the event. Pope, however, talks about shared psychotic disorder, or one person's delusion can spread to another. If this were the case, could the eeriness of the event, the excitement have, have caused the group that were there with Halt to fall into this category of shared psychotic disorder? Could the claims of the many people involved just be remembering the excitement of those nights and the lights they saw were from a different origin altogether? So as a group, they may have recalled seeing lights in the sky and tying the lights to the excitement and claims made by Halt, Burroughs, and Penniston. Um, so one of the books I'm reading is about the apologetics, how they know if um, Jesus Christ was really there after his um, crucifixion. And they talks about how each disciple saw him and was able to ask him questions and all this stuff. And so one of the thought was, is that all these disciples had the same thing, um, like shared psychotic disorder, where they all were seeing uh, the same thing. You're seeing lights from different people's points of views. That's an interesting thought because I, well, part of me thinks, and you know, I, I even took a course on this in, in college during my undergrad where we read it was specifically around war memoirs um from different varying different i think the we went through like vietnam korea more modern wars things like that and there were memoirs written by people uh i think even like world war one and we went through different pieces and thinking back on that one thing that gets talked about a lot and i even mentioned this in other episodes that we've done is that people remember things from the same event differently and so like for example, if you and I and some other people saw something and later on we're talking about that event, yeah, maybe I saw a light off that kind of a light that kind of flew off into the forest. I'm like, oh, that was weird. And then you're like, did you see that light? Did you see that? And we kind of start all putting together this animal that's larger than what it actually is. And I think that becomes part of the shared psychotic disorder. And it's interesting you bring up the disciples and their recollection of interacting with Christ after the crucifixion as possibly being a shared psychotic disorder or a shared psychosis of some event that they all kind of mirrored or merged together into one story in their own recollection. That's, that is an interesting kind of tidbit. Yeah. Like each um, disciple or each person remembers it from their own story. So they could have sat down each of these four people and ask them, you know, what did you remember about the event? And you would obviously assume that the military would, you know, separately investigate each person to see what they say. Well, yeah, true. So th the next theory I want to talk about regarding the lights in the sky. Uh, so remember earlier when we talked about Orford Ness and the top secret experiments? Well, Orford Ness also had a lighthouse. Claims have since been made that the lights that were seen in the sky that night may have originated from the Orfordness Lighthouse, 
So this claim is interesting because, yeah, that would explain a mysterious flashing light in the sky. On its face, you can kind of think, yep, that's the mystery solved. That's it. But the problem I think you run into is, wouldn't the guards on the base be familiar with the lighthouse? And yeah, maybe if this was their first patrol, they could confuse a lighthouse light with strange lights in the sky. But these guys have been there for a while, and I think they would be familiar with a lighthouse at this point. Another piece of this is that Penniston's statement directly mentions a marker beacon that was in the direction of the other lights. In Penniston's statement, he literally discounts the lighthouse as a theory as they used it as a stationary object to identify the lights moving all around it. And I think it's easy for skeptics to say, well, what about the lighthouse? That clearly must be it. And then discount the rest of the data that's sitting right there in their faces. You know, one of the questions I was wondering about this is how far away was this lighthouse? And I Googled it and it's actually 15 minutes away, which um, is 7.1 miles away from where they were at, apparently. Okay, interesting. It's close enough that the people on the base are familiar with it. I, I assume. It, I mean, Penniston noticed it. He, I mean, he talks about it directly. He he directly re- refers to it when he talks about the lights moving all around it. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it was moving is another thing. You know, lighthouse. Obviously, the lights are gonna go in one spot and go in a circle. They're not gonna, you know, move up, down, sideways, or move towards them. Yeah. Another possibility, and with many UFO sightings over the years, how likely is it that this UFO was some sort of experimental plane or vehicle that was being tested near the site? So earlier you asked me, what about things that were happening at the bases, maybe top secret? So after all, we know that top secret experiments did in fact take place at Bodzi Research Center. So it's not unprecedented. It's the same reason so many UFOs have been spotted you know, out west. They are unidentified flying objects because in actuality, they cannot be identified as they don't theoretically exist. So it's possible that this was a Soviet vehicle of some kind that was sent to spy on the twin bases. You know, after all this time, the West and the Soviets were in the thick of the Cold War. Of course, then my other question there would be is if it was a spy sent to spy on those bases, why is there four soldiers that are still alive? Yeah, that's that's also part of that's interesting. So A, it's a um, top secret vehicle that is being experimented on or other things are happening here. Or B, it's a Russian vehicle of some kind that A, crash landed or flew around during Christmas. I don't know. You're right. Why would they still be alive? Or why would the story be as large as it is if it was just something as simple as uh, a spy plane coming and going? So maybe, maybe it's a top secret vehicle that was being tested or it was, you know, the Operation Cobra Mist, the radar system they're creating and it was giving off some types of crazy lights. I don't know. There's a lot of top secret things going on here that could be part of it. It could be an alien or it could be an alien. <laughs> it could be a Russian spy plane. We, we don't know. And so the last theory I want to talk about before we get into the evolution of the story is the possibility of an astronomical event. So the British Astronomical Association does have records of meteor activity from this night, as recorded in their meteor sections newsletter. I can tell you when you're in a state of heightened awareness due to fear or excitement, a meteor lighting up the sky could be enough to potentially create a memory that, when recalled, simulates a UFO experience. So maybe it was an astronomical event, a meteor flying through the sky, and with all the combined psychosis of the area, everyone was 
seeing or thinking or creating this larger story than what happened. Hmm. If that was the case, though, the recording when it was happening, what about the radiation on the ground? True. They did measure radiation. So you would think any just things happening in the sky, like the lighthouse lights or um, astronomical events or whatever, they wouldn't have evidence on the ground. Okay, so those are the theories I read about or kind of felt necessary to cover in this episode. And like I said previously in the notes, we have sources where you can go and read about these for yourselves. I will say, you know, if this episode interests you, I would suggest picking up Nick's book, Nick Pope's book, Encounter in Rendlesham Forest. He did an excellent job compiling all this information, and I don't think there was anything that I read somewhere else that he doesn't at least touch on in his book. Yeah, I am actually really interested in this book now. I, I really want to borrow it from you after you're if you are if you've already finished reading it, I definitely want to read it next. I do have the paperback version and I accidentally also bought the Kindle edition, so I have two copies essentially. Perfect. So you can borrow <laughs> you can borrow one of them if you like. I'll pull it off my shelf for you. So the last thing I want to do before we get into our own opinion or theories is talk about Holt and Peniston's story. It seems that over the years, the story has grown a bit. For example, take the binary code that surfaced as recently as 2010. Holt has spoken on evidence he has gathered since, that there was something like five hours of tape, we talked about that earlier, that exists that an attempt of the US and the UK to cover up this incident, they hid away those five hours. More recently, Holt suggests he has additional radar evidence that he has gathered in the form of statements. So critics may say that adding of information over time may point to a tale still being woven, but maybe this data and information is just further clarification of what was seen those nights back in December of 1980. So lastly, it's now time to talk about our own opinions and observations. So first I'd like to ask Jason, what do you think? All right. So time time traveling secret agents who got stuck because of a broken ship seems likely to um more likely in my opinion uh, obviously the key evidence that proves this conclusion would be the 45 minutes of missing time in my opinion uh, i know you say that's more of an alien thing but it really explains the time machine thing you know you came in you messed with time and what do you get you get 45 minutes of missing time like in my head that makes a little bit more sense so I guess in conclusion, I'm going to go with uh, time-traveling agents from the future, uh, <clears throat> led by secret agent Bigfoot. <laughs> I like that. I like your I like your thought when it comes down to th- when it comes down to it. I, I okay. I, I going back. I think there were lights in the sky. There were things that they experienced. There's actual physical evidence from the ground they pulled. Um, there may be evidence that the government covered things up. I I feel like the time traveling thing is a, is really pushing it. But then if I say that, I feel like I have to also say, well, wouldn't aliens be pushing it? Or wouldn't the alternate dimensions be pushing it? I think what I know is that they experienced something otherworldly in the forest that night. There's evidence to that. There's written accounts. There's verbal accounts. We listened to the recording. Something happened to say it's some crazy extraterrestrial or it's time travel i don't know 
I lean towards, I think I lean towards extraterrestrial, but I also don't want to discount the top secret stuff that was going on there. And there's so many stories of, you know, the U S government and the military testing on people and their own military personnel. Maybe that's, that's part of it. I lean a little bit, maybe towards more of that, but I still think I want to believe aliens showed up. They downloaded some binary code to Jim Penniston. We don't understand the code or he didn't write it down fully, or it was interpreted incorrectly. That's kind of where I'm, I'm leaning towards this time travel thing. Maybe they uncovered some information. You're right. And he is recalling that, but I just feel like that's just too, that's just too far for me. As always, thank you all for joining us tonight to listen to what we have to say about the Brindlesham Forest incident. As this was our first two-part series, I want to say this was definitely a learning experience for me. Trying to compile everything into a digestible medium is definitely not an easy task. Thanks for bearing with me, and I'm sorry if I missed anything or got anything wrong. I probably did. I truly appreciate anyone still hanging around and listening to what Jason and I have to say. So this episode marks the end of our pilot launch. Uh, Moving forward, our hope is to bring a new episode every two weeks with a goal of releasing them on Fridays. So if you found these first four episodes enjoyable, please come back and continue listening as we figure out this medium called podcasting. Thanks again for listening to The Anecdotalist.